Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. And after spending, wow, four years, four seasons anyway, of going through world history in 100 movies, we've started a little uh, tournament here of the most interesting people in world history. Yeah, and this is uh, the first episode in round two. So we narrowed it down. We started off with 32 nominees, and uh, we're down to the Sweet 16 now. So this is going to be the first round of the Sweet 16. Which I, I worried might actually be like a trademark thing that like NCAA like owns Sweet 16, even though it's been a thing about like people turning 16 oh, years old forever. Kind of the way that like the NFL owns Super Bowl. Right. So like you're technically not allowed to, you're gonna have to bleep that out. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but I do like, have you seen the hashtag superb owl? Oh, no. Oh, right. So, so Oh, superb owl? Right, right. That's so funny. you just hashtag things, uh, talk about your superb owls, and you can uh, use that hashtag without fear of repercussions. That's I, I don't know what the sweet 16 nice. uh, <laughs> equivalent would be. But yeah, so I'm pretty excited to get going with this round, because the first round, we kind of went through very superficially, and we just kind of, it was just kind of so much to talk about that we needed to get through, that we didn't have time to do any deep dives, and it was more just kind of almost a knee-jerk reaction of who we just felt was more interesting and worthy of advancing. Today and throughout this whole round, we plan on giving as full of biographies as is reasonable on each <laughs> each historical figure. And then we'll kind of yeah. say, we'll still debate it out the same way and, you know, and we'll vote and do tiebreakers as necessary. But uh, we wanted to give a little more fuller picture of the lives of each of these 16 individuals or in the case of the Trung sisters. They kind of are definitely a tandem. Uh, my thought was we do this almost like you would in baseball where home team bats last, in this case, higher seed. So unless you have an objection, I would say the lower seed will always go first and then we'll end with the higher seed when we're going through these, yeah, these bios. That's fine. That sounds like a good plan. So yes, today's matchup is the Trung sisters of Vietnam who, again, kind of got in the tournament on a little bit of a technicality and that they were mentioned in our episode on Platoon because I dug them up in the history of Vietnam and thought they were fascinating, and then enough that we nominated them for the tournament. But then they dark horse yes. came in, yes. eight seed and beat Jesus <laughs> Big, <laughs> in round one. Biggest upset of the tournament, causing shockwaves across the entire history podcasting industry. <laughs> <laughs> and then Cleopatra from the film Cleopatra that uh, we watched starring Elizabeth Taylor, but also a myriad of films over, over the decades the last pharaoh of Egypt. So, okay, Logan, start us off and let us know uh, everything there is to know about the Trung sisters. Yeah, so so the Trung sisters, and like you said, they, they are the only tandem. They're the only duo in this whole bracket. Um, I think it's because we kind of just put them against Jesus on a whim, <laughs> thinking that, oh, yeah, Jesus is going to easily take round one at least. Uh, but it turns out that they're actually super interesting. Um, so the, the two Trung sisters, Trung Track and Trung Ni, um, which I guess if we did have to pick one, maybe with Trung Track, I mean, a, a lot of times in the history, they are referenced together because a lot of the stuff that they did that's of note, they did both together, um, including being queen at the same time. But, uh, 
Trung Track is, is the older one. Um, and there's like just a little bit more information out there about her than there is about the uh, the younger sister. Okay. But uh, they're so close in age that it's Trung Track is known to be the older one, but it's it's not really clear by how much. Um, they were both born in about 14 AD uh, in what is now Vietnam in the Red River Valley. So in kind of in the area of Hanoi, Haiphong, that, that area of northern Vietnam. They grew up in a time when Vietnam was actually under the control of the Chinese Han Dynasty. Um, and their father was a lock lord, L-A-C, lock. And uh, basically the lock lords were like the uh, Vietnamese local aristocrats that were the kind of the local rulers, but still fell under the control of the Chinese governor. It's like a baron or something for Vietnam under the Han. Kind yeah, of. Yeah. 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 So they grew up in a in a fairly uh, wealthy family. You know, they were they were educated. Um, they were trained in military arts. And this is kind of uh, something that was interesting. So in Vietnam at that time, women were actually held in pretty high regard, like basically equal to men. They were allowed to own property. They were um, allowed to, uh, you know, be military leaders. Um, And that was actually one of the major points of contention when the Chinese took over Vietnam and were trying to kind of assert their control. They took a a sort of a top-down approach. So they got control of the aristocracy first, but then as they tried to assert their control more over the peasants um, in a kind of incrementally, you know, incremental oppression, you know, (laughs) slightly higher taxes over time, stuff like that. One of the things that they tried to impose was a more male dominated society and the peasants, specifically the women, didn't like that because in Vietnam, uh, in their culture, women were more equal to men than they were in uh, Chinese culture. Hmm. So... Like I said, the Chinese were doing this incremental oppression thing, and uh, it got to the point where Trung Trak and her husband, I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation, <laughs> but Tai Tai Sok, he was also a lock lord of a different area, and a bunch of the lock lords got together and plotted to overthrow the Chinese governor of their their province in northern Vietnam. But uh, the Chinese governor discovered what was going on with his spies, and he executed all the men involved. He actually spared all the women. And oh, interesting. Yeah, and, and it's unclear, and, and this is going to be kind of a common thing when we talk about the Trung sisters, is they were written about so much by Vietnamese and uh, Chinese writers and poets and scholars over the years, and it's kind of hard to separate what is true versus what is myth and legend versus... Some of the things even that are could be plausibly true, it's a toss-up. Like, you don't really know. So it's kind of unclear whether the women were spared because the governor wanted to show mercy or whether he just thought, oh, well, they're women. Like, what are they going to do? I kill all the men, so the threat is eliminated, and I don't have to worry about anything. Uh, but either way, the women in the plot were spared, um, and this in- included uh, Trunk Track. And so her and her sister they like i said they both had this military leadership and training by virtue of their upbringing as the daughters of one of these lock lords and so they began to arm and train the peasants in their area and started attacking chinese garrisons basically started a revolution a peasant revolution to overthrow the chinese rulers in their area and as they started their revolution it wasn't taken seriously at first and that was kind of the reason that they were able to be as successful as they were is because the Chinese underestimated them specifically because they were women. 
and because they were women with a peasant army, but they were super successful in their campaigns, uh, and they kind of overtook, you know, town after town, and as they became more successful, the more peasants became empowered, and they ended up amassing a, a huge army, and uh, ended up kicking the Chinese governor out of Vietnam, out of the province. And so he, he did survive. He wasn't killed when they attacked, you know, his stronghold, but he was able to escape and he fled back to China and they basically declared themselves the new rulers of Vietnam. And so it's some sources say that they were both queen, that they they were both queens. Um, others said that like uh, Trung Trok, who's the older sister and was the queen and Trung Nhi was the vice regent. But either way, both basically were ruling Vietnam together. So what's crazy is this is just something straight out of Hollywood with the underestimated women never given a shot and then, you know, breaking that glass ceiling and beating the oppressors. And again, it's, it's almost like this little Braveheart thing. And how has there never been a movie like this is? This is legit. I don't know. And I know. And it was two two thousand literally two well, yeah, about two thousand years ago. And it's just too perfect with with what you're saying, with them being only spared because they're women, and then they then soon just kick butt and win anyway and they declare themselves in charge. Right. And like you you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. They're only spared because they're women, and then they start this revolution and they're like, ah, oh, it's just women leading a bunch of peasants. Like, how dangerous could that be? Oh, uh, actually they kicked the Chinese out of Vietnam like they were super successful. Right. So kind of one of the ultimate ultimate underdog stories, yeah. Right, yeah. So they established their new kingdom basically, extended all the way from uh the Red River Delta area in northern v- in northern Vietnam all the way south to modern day Way City. So a pretty sizable chunk of modern-day Vietnam they were controlling. Unfortunately, after the governor got kicked out, the Chinese did take them very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel. This is the sequel now. <laughs> right, yeah. So this all happened in about 40 AD. Uh, after they kicked the Chinese governor out, they proclaimed themselves queens, and then China took them seriously. So they sent a, a famous Chinese general, Ma Yuan, to go take back Vietnam from the Trung sisters. They fought a war against Ma Yuan, but, I mean, we're talking about the full might of the Han Dynasty at this point. Like, they really didn't stand a chance. And in 42 AD, near what is uh, Hanoi today, they were defeated by the Chinese general. And, again, this is uh, another part of their story that we don't really know what happened for sure. Um, Some sources that I saw said that they died in battle. Some said that they committed suicide by walking into a river rather than being captured. And then some sources said that they were captured and executed and their heads were sent back to China. And then there are some sources that say that they ascended into the clouds (laughs) and uh, were, you know, taken up into heaven because of how good of a job that they did. (laughs) So who's who's to say what really happened there? But uh Either way, that was kind of the end of their the end of their reign, and, and the Chinese did end up taking Vietnam back over. But for a short period of time, for a couple of years, they were the rulers of Vietnam. It also makes me think of kind of with the underdog story, and also with the how it takes a while to be taken seriously, but then they are taken seriously. It makes me think of Dracula, Vlad the Impaler in Wallachia, how he's just kind of stuck between the yeah. 
Ottomans and the Hungarian Empire, and they don't really see him as a serious threat until he right. proves himself a serious threat. Right, but imagine if Vlad the Impaler was two girls instead. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, another thing that we use, you know, is a kind of a measuring stick for how we grade the interestingness of these people in this bracket is staying power. And uh, I think the just the number of the amount of writing that was done about them by both the Vietnamese and the Chinese for the next like thousand years is pretty crazy. There's a ton of stuff named after them in Vietnam. Streets are named after them. There's a district in Hanoi that's named after them. Schools are named after them. A bunch of shrines and temples were built and dedicated to them in Vietnam and in China. And there's even a festival that uh, celebrates these two Trung sisters that happens kind of towards the beginning of the of the lunar year every year. Um, so even to this day, they're they're kind of celebrated as these national heroes in Vietnam for 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 what they did. Standing up to the Chinese is something. Yeah, the Vietnam would still take a lot of pride in. And so basically, right. they are every bit as famous as they quote unquote should be. It just had no reason to cross over into Western culture where we would ever become aware of them. Yeah, they're absolutely you know, enormous national heroes in Vietnam. Um, but yeah, for some reason, we don't really... Uh... It'd, be like if, it'd be like if someone in Vietnam and is like, oh, I've never heard of King Arthur. Like, who's King Arthur? Like... Right. Or or like, I, you know, who's George, like... George Washington? Or... George Washington. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Exactly. And there are certain ones you think of like, oh, well, we've heard of Milan, but it's like, well, yeah, because Disney made a movie about her and she actually was even uh, just a legendary figure, whereas these are actually historical figures... Right. And you're right. I, I think it does just take one movie and, oh my gosh, this really happened. And they are household names all of a sudden. I, I think it just, just, just like Mulan is now, I think it does just take one, you know, piece of Western culture to be that commercial for them, so to speak. And I think they would be yeah. uh, household names over overnight. I think this is a fascinating story. I honestly am just like you. I'm shocked that there's not a huge Hollywood movie made about them. It's it's Braveheart, but it's two right. girls. So then even, there's even some from the Western world. No one had ever heard, and I say no one, most people, especially in America, had not heard of William Wallace until the film Braveheart. Even the, right. even the screenwriter, Rand, uh, Randall Wallace, I remember hearing a story where he was in Scotland just on vacation and saw a statue, and his last name was Wallace, so he saw a statue of this guy, William Wallace, who he had never heard of, did the research and wrote the movie Braveheart. So, yeah. well... well did the research in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, did the research, changed most of that, and wrote the movie Braveheart. But yes, so yeah, there are these figures where it is, it is kind of just speak to the importance of pop culture in elevating some of these stories from the past. Yeah, again, it all just kind of ties into why I dig this stuff in the first place, is I don't actually see this big difference between studying history and watching movies and reading books. To me, it's all always been about hearing these stories and getting into these stories. And whether it's you right now telling me about the Chung sisters or reading, you know, a fantasy novel, it's all just that same enjoyment I get of hearing these stories. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. So is there, I guess, are there like any Vietnamese movies about them though, or anything like, or just, or, uh, or, you know, a, historical fiction novel set in vietnam like but actually written in vietnamese anything like that you were able to find not that i found but okay. i'm gonna do a google search real fast <laughs> Cause, yeah because it sounds like there might not be anything available in english but yeah, I mean, you'd have to imagine that someone i mean someone had to have written like the definitive like 
you know, the more Darther or whatever equivalent about the Trung sisters. I, <laughs> I, uh, I Googled Trung sisters movie and the top hit on Google is a article called seven badass women of history who deserve a movie. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So, absolutely. My, my other question, and while well, we we're still looking that up, is what well, I was going to ask, and again, this is, I think, probably my own kind of just assumption of misogyny and history. I was like, well, do they have any brothers? But it's almost like that's irrelevant because the Vietnamese saw everybody as equal. Right. Yeah. yeah it didn't, okay. it, it didn't, like, I, not that I saw. Right. I don't even know right. if they had other siblings at all. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't, it d- didn't really, didn't really matter. That Oh, that was one of the other things that I forgot to mention is that when they started their peasant army, they put a bunch of women in charge. Like they promoted like 60 women to the rank of general, including their mom. And they were like, these are the leaders. And and that was just like another thing that made their army be not taken as seriously as, oh yeah, it's a bunch of women leading a bunch of peasants. And because it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, it's, you know, it's not like a, like a Joan of Arc type thing where it's like, oh, like there's the trunk sisters, but like, the rest of the army is being led by all these male generals. Like, no, their army was like women from the top down. I, I almost feel like there hasn't been a movie because no one would believe it. I, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't, it, it wasn't even it, from reading about it. It doesn't even sound like they were like, oh, we want to empower women. It's like, it didn't matter. It didn't matter that they were women. It didn't matter that the people they were putting in charge of women. It was, it was a non-issue. Right. Yeah. It, it was just, these are the people who are qualified. These are the people who, you know, have had this training and this education, this knowledge. So they're the ones that are going to be in charge. Which is crazy today that in, you know, our modern Western world, we would see it as a bigger deal today, 2000 years ago than they saw it back then. And so it just kind of speaks to what level a lot of this misogyny and and male dominated society over the centuries is just a cultural and traditional thing and and so another culture just can, can completely develop another way. So my last question was going to be, and I don't know if you would know this, but to what extent is what is the equality of the sexes like in Vietnam today? Is that something that's continued over oh, the centuries, or did that maybe get kind of I like beat out of them? And I didn't really look into that. Yeah, yeah I, no, no, and, and, yeah, it'd be interesting to. Yeah, find I, out, I would. Be, I would be curious. Uh, so I I found um, an article from this is October of 2019 about a Vietnamese movie that was starting to be made with a Vietnamese name that I can't pronounce, but the English translation is She Kings, and it's about the Trung sisters. (laughs) Okay, okay. Okay, it says the filming will begin next year and casting later this year. I'm gonna gonna bet that that was delayed by COVID-19. Oh, right, okay, okay. Because this was in October of 2019, and it's saying that, oh, production's getting ready to start. That's... That's probably delayed. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, but hey, it's very possible in the next few years we're going to get that movie. Now, Vietnamese movie, but still, if it's uh, good enough of a production, we uh, hopefully we'll be able to see that. Yeah. And the artwork, like, so there's the, here, I'm going to drop this link to you in the chat. Because the artwork for this, it's really cool. Oh, yeah. Dang, that does look cool. Okay. Yeah. So the, the Trunk Sisters with a very impressive... Uh, opening uh, basically throwing down the gauntlet the true sisters throing down the gauntlet to say all right well it's like a dance or what is it or i think like a, a eight mile or something where it's like a rap battle or something <laughs> and uh the true sisters just stunned the room and now cleopatra is taking the mic <laughs> yeah what's interesting is just right off the bat is kind of you think about the the similarities and differences as far as 
Cleopatra, obviously a leader and a powerful woman who was probably underestimated due to her sex. But as far as pop culture references and people just being aware, I mean, kind of the exact opposite. You kind of go from two very obscure leading women from Vietnam to one of the most famous women in all of history. So, Oh, right. Like, uh, <laughs> if uh, you take, like, the average American and you're like, quick, name a woman that was alive, you know... <laughs> about 2,000 years 2000, ago. About 2,000 years ago. It just, and in charge. Right. <laughs> no, not even in charge, just any, name any woman oh, right, from right. 2,000 years ago. Like, a lot of those answers are going to be Cleopatra. Right, right, 99 <laughs> out of 100. And, and the other one won't be... Uh, the Trung sisters, it'll be like Mary Magdalene or somebody. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. Oh, you know, what? I didn't even think that these are roughly, roughly contemporary. The same. Yeah. yeah. Like almost was... almost exactly. Mary, if Jesus... they're, so their their revolution, the Trunk sisters revolution is like 40 to 42 AD. And when was uh, Cleopatra born? Well, okay, so I, I was thinking more, I was going with the Mary Magdalene thing. She was ba- so basically, oh, right. The Trunk sisters were basically contemporaries of Jesus. Yes. Yeah, uh, Cleopatra died in 30 BC. Oh, okay, right, right, right. Yeah, so separated, like, yeah, by a f- couple generations, but on the scale of all of human right. history, it's no, right, close. right. And the Cleopatra, <laughs> the more known one, was actually longer ago. Uh, but again, a lot of that ties is going to get into you know she's connected to Roman history, and it's just a part of it's just the history we're taught. We we don't get a lot right. of Vietnamese history in school, but some, for some reason we get Roman history. But again, I think it's because that's Roman history's influence then on the rest of Europe, which then is where the colonization of America's happened is out of Europe. So I think I think there's a reason right. for that. Uh, I do just wish we got a more even in world history. I feel like we get a pretty superficial look at things that don't directly influence Europe, and then in turn the Americas. Okay. So we do know a lot about Cleopatra just because of Roman records and every, all the records from this part of the world are just pretty thorough. And there's figures well after this time period that we just don't we don't know near as much of. I'm, we've already mentioned kind of you know the comparison to King Arthur with the Trunk Sisters. And King Arthur, if he existed, would have been in like the 500s AD. But there was just not records in England at the time kept at the level of what the Romans and Egyptians and then the Chinese and even the Vietnamese were doing, you know, hundreds of years earlier. So that is right. kind of interesting. So because of all that, though, we don't know the exact date that Cleopatra was born, uh, but she was born kind of in the first part of 69 BC in Alexandria, Egypt. And she was of Greek descent because this all just is piggybacking off of the conquests of Alexander the Great. And after well, Alex- that's yeah. That's why the town was, or the city was named Alexandria because it was there like true. There was like over over a dozen Alexandrias across Europe and or across Asia at this time yes, because yes. he was he was name, making crazy cities crazy like that. Yeah, naming everything after himself. And so yes, this is the most famous Alexandria or city named after Alexander. Right. So after his kingdom was split into all the different things, uh, basically it was his three men generals kind of took over, and his general Ptolemy took over Egypt, or was, you know, anyway, had, was in charge of Egypt, and basically became, they become like the kings and pharaohs or whatever of Egypt. And then it was actually then that Ptolemy that started the Targaryen-style inbreeding, that, the, <laughs> the, which is, yeah. is kind of weird because the Greeks hadn't done it, but the Egyptians had. And then, so I almost think, almost think maybe it was just part of him, not ingratiating himself exactly, but just if we're going to be in charge of Egypt, we're going to 
when in Rome, do things like the Romans. Well, when in Egypt, marry your sister. <laughs> yeah. So it even started. So, so even, even it just seems so weird, though, if you didn't come from that as your culture. Because, like, it started with Ptolemy's kids. Ptolemy's son and daughter married each other and had kids. Like, it started right from him. It wasn't like they slowly became more and more Egyptian. Like, the moment he takes right. over Egypt, oh, well, I guess my kids need to get married to each other. Just so weird. So we've kind of talked Yikes. about Cleopatra's family tree. <laughs> it's a straight line. He said, you look at the family tree, it does, it's straight out of like George R. R. Martin's Targaryen family trees with, you know, it's not always brothers and sisters. Sometimes it's, a, you know, it's a niece and then first cousins, but then right back to siblings. And it oh, just, yeah. it just doesn't branch very far. Yeah. Well, like in, in Game of Thrones, that's why the Mad King is the Mad King, because mm. he was like super inbred yeah, and just yeah. was crazy. Yeah. Anyways. So and we so we know we know her father then was uh Ptolemy the twelfth, because again this is three hundred years later, so Cleopatra's father is Ptolemy the twelfth. And we're actually not a hundred percent sure who her mother was. It's just just because the historical record wasn't clear. So it's probably uh another woman named Cleopatra the sixth or fifth. Again, the record's just kinda tricky. And whoever this possible mother was she's not even in the historical record long after cleopatra's birth so she's kind of just irrelevant because we don't know what happened to her so she had a mom she was born but (laughs) she she was the pharaoh's daughter and actually one of several children that he had that we won't get into all of them because again this is so so not like a like an Alexander where both mom and dad are also like big historical figures in their own rights. Right, like she, right. She kind of, I mean, her she comes from the line of Ptolemy, but her her mom obviously is just somebody. Yeah, and even like it's even partly too just because we're actually not even sure this woman is her mother. So I think there is maybe a decent amount known on this woman before Cleopatra was born, but we're also not one hundred percent sure that that woman was her mother. Oh, okay. But I think it's one of those things like she was for sure the mom of Cleopatra's older sister, but we're not sure if she was still the mom of Cleopatra, that kind of thing. Usually, it's, usually it's you know, no, right, because sure who right. the dad is. No, no, <laughs> right. And at the time, yes, you always know who the mother is, and they knew at the time. We just don't know, obviously, all this time later, based on the records, it's hard for us to say. Gotcha. So, yeah, so she uh, grew up at the palace in Alexandria and was given more of a Greek-style education. And actually, that's kind of something we're going to see here is that the Greeks and the Ptolemies kind of stayed, despite the inbreeding thing, they kind of stayed mostly Greek. And Cleopatra, after, you know, a few hundred years of this Ptolemaic dynasty, she does kind of stand out as actually learning Egyptian and actually caring about the Egyptian people and getting invested in in their kind of culture as opposed to just being this Greek ruler off in the palace kind of separated off and and seen as aloof. Oh, that's interesting. So I I guess I kind of always thought of her as Egypt, you know, Egyptian culturally because she, you know, even though she was descended from Greeks that she was growing up in Egypt so she was Egyptian. But you're saying that Actually, her whole family stayed mostly Greek, and the Egyptian thing was a choice for her. Yeah, it, it does seem to be that way, yeah. And I would huh. say that her even her father was definitely kind of more Greek and may not have even spoke Egyptian, even after hundreds of years. Oh, wow. But yeah, so she, if not necessarily fluent, she was was at least familiar with at least eight languages, if not more. And there's even kind of like this, oh, not necessarily famous, but just idea that 
Oh, the, she doesn't even need a translator. You think about all these rulers in this area at the time, there's all these different languages all over the region. And obviously then if, you know, someone from another region is coming to talk to you, there's going to be a translator. That Cleopatra was just kind of this badass who just never needed a translator. Whoever came from wherever, she could just talk to them. Yeah, that's kind of a that's kind of a power move if you think about it. Oh, like right. If you show up and all of a sudden the person starts talking to you and, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, go talk to this ruler. And they start talking to you in your own language. Like, oh, man, that's like... It's a pretty hard flex. Which we saw with Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones, where she would use that yeah. that exact thing to great effect. And actually, I mean, the more I'm right. thinking about it, there's there's actually kind of uh, more parallels than I... I mean, we've always talked about the parallels with Game of Thrones, because we both kind of dig this show, but I never really thought about the Daenerys Targaryen slash Cleopatra comparison. But I, I think there's yeah. definitely... Which, it's like, how did I not think of that? Because it is kind of obvious if you start right looking at like Danny even being in a pyramid at one point or whatever. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Again, this was probably more complicated than we need to really get into point by point. But uh, again, with there's just all these various factions always fighting and blah, 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 blah. But so at one point, her father was exiled and actually kind of kicked off the throne. And Cleopatra's older sister takes charge. And while her father's exiled, Cleopatra is probably with him. And they spend time kind of outside of Rome. All during this time, Egypt is what they call a client state of the Roman Republic. So it's not like necessarily considered part of the Republic, but it's definitely under the thumb of the Republic, financially and politically and everything. It had been for a while. So the pharaoh is in charge of Egypt, but he's kind of subservient to Rome, who's just a bigger military might in their area. Would a, a parallel be like the way that the British or the, yeah, the British Raj in India where India wasn't necessarily considered like, oh, this is like Great Britain, like how in Algeria that was considered part of France, whereas, you know, India was like, oh, it's it's still like it's India, but it's under the control of the British. Is, is it kind of similar? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's probably a decent comparison as far as Rome is technically in... I don't even know if the Rome is technically in charge, right? They're not in charge. So like Egypt had some autonomy. right. Because it's not really, it's not a colony. Right. Okay. India to Britain is probably a decent comparison. Rome was in charge, had a military presence, but probably even less so, though. I would say it's maybe more autonomous than India was to Britain. Gotcha. It was just a lesser power, even though it was kind of wealthy and, and had definitely plenty of resources that could help. It was definitely a second to Rome in the Mediterranean. And just go, one little kind of interesting thing is while they were exiled uh, near Rome, they actually stayed at a home owned by. Pompey, which will kind of kind of come into later when Pompey then ends mm. up in Egypt kind of asking for help. He's got this connection mm-hmm. to the Egyptian royal family because they had stayed at his place just outside of Rome uh, while they were in exile. And so eventually her uh, her father's just kind of then behind the scenes, you know, going through, you know, recruiting help from the Romans and trying to figure out a way to get his, his, uh, his throne back. And it's crazy, too. Like, all these things take years I and mean, we're going to be talking about we're going to talk about 40 years worth of cleopatra's lifetime and we're going to do it you know in 20 minutes here or whatever it's just so complicated in this whole fleshed out life and there's just so many things these things take time but that's why she's on the bracket <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly well well but anybody if you're going to give a point by point detail of your life story i mean it's, it's just there's a lot that, oh right yeah there's just a lot that goes into it and all these little things so while her father's recruiting help though they actually do encounter a young up-and-coming general or leader in Rome uh, by the name of Mark Antony, who doesn't obviously have any kind of relationship with Cleopatra this time. She's about 14, 
But he would later say that it was kind of a love at first sight thing for him where he like never shook the idea of this uh, this teenager that he saw while she was with her dad and he and trying to get he was trying to get his thrown back and everything and that later he kind of never forgot her when they would ultimately start their relationship. Mm-hmm. So in 55 uh, BC, Cleopatra's dad did get her throne, uh, his throne back and executes the daughter that had usurped him in the meantime and names Cleopatra as his joint ruler. Later also names one of her brothers as an heir too. Again, unlike what you were talking about in Vietnam, it was kind of expected that you ha- there had been female pharaohs and stuff, but there, you, it was kind of expected that you needed to have at least a co-ruler male. So it was kind of set up to where after their dad died, Cleopatra will be joint ruler with her brother. And that is what happened. Their dad dies in 51 BC. So Cleopatra would be, what, about 17 by then? 18, 17, 18 by then. And her her brother was also Ptolemy, right? Yes, and it gets confusing. So I try not to use the names a ton just because it doesn't right. get so confusing. So her dad was Ptolemy the, the 12th. And then the brother who she starts off being co-ruler with, who will be kind of important here for a little bit, is Ptolemy the 13th. So they are joint rulers, and they are probably married, but that might have just kind of been on paper. Right. They don't, as long as like no one wants to talk about it. Well, because he was like, a, wasn't he like a little kid? Well, that's Tommy the 14th, her other brother, that we'll get to. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Well, but, but kind of both. So this this brother's young, too, but he's a little more important, and then the brother later is even younger, and yeah, it, and also a Ptolemy. <laughs> like I said, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, so they were probably married, but I don't know to what extent any of these relationships were actually consummated. She doesn't have any kids with either of her brothers because she ends up marrying two of her brothers. <sighs> she anyway, she she's not a big fan of Ptolemy the Thirteenth. Again, Cleopatra is crazy smart, crazy capable, and ambitious, and wants to rule Egypt by herself. So she has no interest in her brother being co-pharaoh or whatever with her. But again, society at the time, she doesn't really just have a choice in the matter right and egypt at this time was pretty chaotic there was lots of famine lots of crime one of the gangs in egypt at the time was this basically group of abandoned roman soldiers like when they had come to help cleopatra's father regain his throne rome just kind of forgot about them and so now these soldiers are just kind of stuck in egypt with no orders and they just kind of become these violent gangs wait is that the that's not the same group of roman soldiers that she like uses later right or is it no if if anything her brother ends up recruiting them more than she does oh okay um and they do have a name for them that i I didn't write down here that i kind of forget but yeah they were kind of this this kind of these roaming bands of brigands were these former roman soldiers that just got abandoned in egypt i thought that was kind of crazy and then that kind of then leads into not too long after this again everything takes time and blah 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 but they kind of get roped into the civil war going on with Rome. So again, this isn't, we could go into crazy depth here, but with the whole Julius Caesar and Pompey stuff, but that's not really, when I'm trying to focus on Cleopatra here, but yes. So when Caesar did the whole crossing the Rubicon thing with the army into Rome, his co-consul Pompey was kind of forced to flee because he had told Caesar to kind of come Back to Rome with his tail tucked between his legs. Uh, Caesar says, nope, I'm coming with the army, which is a breach of protocol. But also, he's crazy popular. And everyone's like, yay, Caesar. So Pompey has to get the heck out of there. Uh, Also, this whole time, Cleopatra was on the outs with her brother. Again, she kind of wanted to be in charge and 
everyone's like, nah, we think he should be in charge. And so she ends up kind of exiled, similar to, to what her father had been earlier. And she's just kind of then gathering her forces elsewhere. Again, everything's crazy complicated. And you could just talk for hours and hours and days and weeks about every little battle and faction and alliance. That's the thing about about trying to cover Cleopatra is that she was connected to so many other things that were going on in, you know, in the the area of the Mediterranean at the time that it's, yeah, it is hard to go, to not go off on tangents because, yeah, she just connected to so much other stuff. Right. And you just think about, and we know so much because of the records. And, it, you know, we know right. all these, we, oh, here's this treaty. Well, we know about it. So let's talk about it. And it's just, there, there, there's too much to get into. Right. So... Pompey had gone to Egypt and sought out Ptolemy the Thirteenth, Cleopatra's brother, in order to basically, hey, you got to help me against Caesar. I helped, you know, I had helped your dad and all these kinds of things, blah blah blah. And Ptolemy decides that I think I'm going to put my money on Caesar. <laughs> so he betrays and has Pompey beheaded. And then when Caesar arrives in Egypt, Ptolemy, these people are like, "You're welcome. Here's his head." And thinking Caesar will be thrilled that it's all over and they helped him. And Caesar's actually super pissed off (laughs) because kind of just a point of decorum. He didn't necessarily want Pompey dead as much as he wanted him defeated. Or if he did want him dead, it it should have been on the field of battle as befitted someone as Pompey's status. Wasn't he planning on like... Like pardoning him, like letting him go. Aren't there sources that say that he was like planning on basically sparing his life and like at the most maybe sending him off into exile? But he did, definitely didn't want to kill him. Right, right. Or again, at least, if, or if yeah, he didn't wasn't going to execute him. Right. Obviously, he may have died in combat, and that would have been considered more honorable and all those kinds of things. And also, he was like Pompey was married to Julius Caesar's daughter. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, it was his son-in-law. I mean, they're about the same age. Or Pompey was actually maybe even older, but. It was his son-in-law, and like there was this mm-hmm. history of this relationship, and you aren't going to completely mend it after the crossing of the Rubicon, but you did not want him to be killed by these backwater Egyptians, right? The Romans were nothing if not arrogant, so even though Egyptian Egypt was, you know, historyed and powerful, it was beneath Pompey to be killed at the hand of the Egyptians in Caesar's mind. So Ptolemy didn't do himself any favors in Caesar's eyes, and then Cleopatra who's like, oh, maybe I can get Caesar's help in my whole feud with my brother, has herself smuggled smuggled in to, to meet with Caesar privately. She couldn't just obviously march in with her armies because of all the her brother's armies and everything else. Again, it, it's complicated. The story that is used in the movie and is, pro- is not too much of an exaggeration, but the whole idea that she was basically rolled up in like a carpet and then unrolled out of the carpet in front of Caesar probably wasn't that dramatic, but she was kind of smuggled in in like the laundry or something so it was yeah she was smuggled in and in hiding it just probably wasn't quite so dramatic and this is where you get into the whole of who cleopatra actually was and it's easy for films and stories to sell it as she's just this great sexy beauty who just seduces caesar to her side and i actually just watched a video this morning that kind of talks about how reductionist that is and it kind of maybe doesn't give full credit to the intelligence we've talked about and the how capable she actually was as a leader and that her sexuality is almost incidental as opposed to the main tool she had in her quiver right yeah and that we 
forgive and don't even talk about the affairs of Caesar and Antony outside of Cleopatra. But for Cleopatra, we focus on it too much as being like right. her whole identity. And that's not that's not fair. That's frankly not just not correct. And she was super capable. Sure. And actually, they'll even talk about how her idea of being irresistible has possibly even been like mistranslated over the centuries and that she was irresistible, not because she was so gorgeous, but because she was just so freaking interesting that she could talk all these languages and talk to Julius Caesar about politics and warfare and do so in a way that maybe he'd never even had a conversation with not even just a woman, but she would have this insight that other people didn't have. And just, she was that fascinating. So doesn't take long. Julius Caesar does decide to side with Cleopatra against her brother. He always has the Roman army there present, but Ptolemy actually had more troops there. It was just Rome was just kind of more trained and scarier, more intimidating, but Pompey's forces did outnumber them. And so we get to the siege of Alexandria, where Pompey's forces attack the combined forces of Caesar and Cleopatra in Alexandria. And you kind of then get into, this is one possible instances of the burning of the library of alexandria but that famous thing is actually more of a it's not like there was one time the alexandria the library of alexandria burned down and was lost forever it was more just like there were fires over the years and at some point there was no longer a library we don't actually have like it was never a single event yeah but part of that legend and mythos of the burning and one of the possible fires could have happened during this uh this battle and (laughs) Again, also, you got Cleopatra's other siblings are also messed up during the middle of this mess. We already had her father execute one of her sisters who had uh, usurped her. Well, another sister ends up declared queen at this time. Oh, my God. In the midst in the midst of all this. That, like, I can't even get my head around the idea that, okay, her brother is attacking her and Julius Caesar. But then sometime in the middle of all that, her sister actually sloops in and is, is like, declared queen declared queen temporarily and it's like how how would that even work logistically but again it just all happens over <laughs> such a long time period anyway and, you know people are trying to assassinate julius caesar during the same time you know kind of sneak in and get him out of the picture anyway uh julius caesar and cleopatra's forces do ultimately went out her brother drowns in the nile while retreating and cleopatra's sister is captured and paraded through Rome, they would do like they would call them the triumphs, where you kind of get back from your campaign, and they would do a triumph where you basically kind of parade everything you've captured and you know all the new things from other parts of the world that you brought back to Rome to kind of show off. Well, Cleopatra, okay. Cleopatra's sister was paraded through Rome when when Caesar returned as kind of this, you know, look what I got. It's some, uh, it's the queen of Egypt, <laughs> right, right, or yeah, someone who tried to be, but I showed her oh, better, right, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason that's actually kind of significant is it will come into play later. In theory, I mean, we're jumping ahead. Everyone kind of knows a lot of the stories. It might even play into Cleopatra's decision to commit suicide because she'll be damned if she submits herself to the same thing. Oh, the same humiliation. Right, right. She, Yeah, basically she's like, I ain't going to be paraded down Rome as part right. of your conquest, Octavian. And again, that's kind of yeah. jumping ahead here. Uh, but yes, her and her and Julius Caesar did have a son who they named, uh, or she named uh, Caesarian. Caesar was actually already back in Rome by the time the the son was born. There's also a, an age difference. I don't know how significant it is. Obviously, different times back then, and you know, obviously it was more of a it was a it was an alliance on many levels. But so when their son was born, Cleopatra was 22. 
Julius Caesar was nearly 53. So there's about a 30-year age gap. Yeesh. Yeah, about a 30-year age gap uh, but between the two. It's significant, but it's not... Uh, it's it's honestly... We've seen worse because she wasn't like... Yeah, a- I was going to say, that there's definitely like way worse, especially when you look at like uh, some of the age differences between... Well, wasn't... Didn't Henry the Eighth have like some pretty crazy huge age differences? But like, wasn't he in his sixties? Oh, like, right, right. Or I mean, or, or again, it's like when Cleopatra's twenty-two. I think it doesn't bother me as much as you know when it's they're having kids with fourteen-year-olds. Sure, yeah, exactly. Right. She's she's yeah. having her first kid at twenty-two years old. Well, that's reasonable. It, just, it happened right. to be a fifty-year-old Julius Caesar. <laughs> right. So Caesar also then when he could have returned to Rome, kind of this is kind of before the kid was born. Hung out in Egypt for a long time. This is where him and Cleopatra uh, reportedly visited the tomb of Alexander the Great, which, of course, has all kinds of baggage almost for both of them. But this is kind of, you know, the whole Greek influence that led to her being here in the first place through Ptolemy the first, and then also Caesar, who may you know want to try to style himself as a new age Alexander. But, you know, is, is that something, he, a legacy he can ever live up to? And then also just, he was just kind of interested in learning as much about how Egypt was doing things. And maybe there was some reforms he could bring back to Rome. Because he was now, of course, the dictator of Rome. And, and there was actually kind of different terms. He was kind of declared dictator for longer and longer stints. And kind of kept getting re-upped. Like, oh, you can be dictator for a month. Okay, maybe yeah. maybe six months. Okay, now maybe a year. And he kind of kept getting re-upped. Which- which that term, and I, I think we talked about it when we did Julius Caesar in the first round, the first round. But the term dictator at that time was actually a Roman term. It didn't mean dictator like we think of today, like an oppressive ruler. It meant right. like, you know, from the from the Latin word like dictating. Right. Like you're the speaker for the people. You're, you're or you're you're the shot caller. You're the, it's right. Like, yeah. yeah. We're going we're gonna to say instead of going through the Senate, we're just going to let you call the shots for a, for a month to get things done more smoothly. That's really all it meant. Right. And so, yeah, so he's kind of learning about Egypt and, and again goes back to Rome and is, and again, this isn't about Julius Caesar, but it's important to remember that he's insanely popular. The, the people are all about what he's doing. And yes, it's unconventional, which will ultimately, ultimately lead to his assassination when the Senate thinks he has too much power. But the people liked what he was doing. And I don't think he was necessarily doing anything. Yeah, he was definitely arrogant and felt he deserved to be uh, in this position in Rome. But he was not necessarily doing anything negative other than <laughs> undermining what the Republic had been for centuries, <laughs> <laughs> which is why the Senate ultimately takes him out. And then so Cleopatra, about a year after Caesarian is born, she does go to Rome as well. And it's in Rome at the time that Caesar is assassinated, which is kind of something that's typically left out of movies to focus on Julius Caesar and his conquests and his assassination. They don't really dwell on the Cleopatra side of things. I mean, the, in the play Julius Caesar, I don't think Cleopatra's even in it. Oh, really? No, I mean, well, I haven't read it since high school, but she's not listed in the cast. Anyway, so while Cleopatra was in Rome when Caesar was assassinated, Octavian was not. And so this, then we kind of then need to get all this stuff in, in our head. So Caesar did acknowledge that his son was Cleopatra was his biological son, but she wasn't Roman. The kid wasn't Roman. Right. Caesar didn't have any sons, but he was married. And then so even though he said the kid was his, he never made Caesarian his legitimate official heir or anything like that. Right. Again, going back to Game of Thrones, it's kind of a Jon Snow situation. You know, Ned Stark acknowledges him as his son, but he's not 
he's not made a Stark. He's not legitimized. He, yeah. 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 Okay. There, there you go. And so his heir is his like grand nephew. I, I forget exactly, but I think Octavian is like his sister's grandson. Is something like that. Is Julius Caesar's sister's grandson? Octavian is Julius Caesar's sister's grandson. I, I, I that's off the top of my head. If you want to look okay. that up real quick while I'm talking, feel free. So. He basically, he was not in Rome at the time. He shows up to Rome about the same time as uh, Cleopatra's leaving Rome because she really, she doesn't have her son with her, but not having Caesar as her ally, she's just a little nervous to be around when Octavian's back. So she takes off back to Egypt. Again, it's not like there's any inherited thing. Just because Octavian is Caesar's heir, it doesn't mean he automatically then becomes dictator. Again, Rome is a republic with, with councils that are elected yearly. And so it's not really... There's no power coming inherited inherited to Octavian, Octavian other than just Caesar was a powerful person and Octavian inher- has the right to his estates and things and will definitely have some political pull in the future if the Republic were to remain as it had been for centuries. But before we can get to any of that, Mark Antony and Octavian and a third guy, Lepidus, who they become the second triumphant, but Lepidus basically gets marginalized so quickly I wasn't even going to mention him. Yeah. So the they they're powerful enough... And the assassins kind of realize, you know, Brutus and all those guys realize that, oh, uh, no one really likes that we killed Caesar, even though we feel justified that we did it for the good of the Republic. We got to get the heck out of Rome. And Octavian and Mark Antony team up to track down the assassins. Now, again, this is Cleopatra's story, so I don't want to get into exactly all of that. But she is kind of asked to help them out and is willing to help them out. But... Uh, it all kind of is over. They kind of got the assassins all taken care of before Cleopatra is able to help. She just couldn't get her mar- armies mobilized in time. And one of her commanders even tried to defect to help the assassins. And so, again, all that take ta- takes time. Like, it's it's basically three years pass from the time of Julius Caesar's assassination to the time that Antony finally meets up with Cleopatra in Alexandria after the assassins have all been defeated. So... Three, again, everything takes a long time. In fact, yeah. from the assassination of Caesar to kind of the fall of Antony and Cleopatra is 13, 14 years. So, like, this is, like, basically most of Cleopatra's sole reign of Egypt is after the death of Caesar and where she actually gets to administer. Right. Because what we did mention is when she did go to Rome uh, before Caesar was killed, she did go with her another brother, Ptolemy Fourteenth, right. who she was also probably married to. He was the one who was a little kid. Yes. So he was, yeah. Uh, so her, her brother, Ptolemy Thirteenth had already drowned, escaping Caesar's forces when he was retreating. And then her brother, Ptolemy Fourteenth, who goes with her to Rome. Well, when she gets back to Egypt, she just has him poisoned so she can rule by herself. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, so again, she's ruthless and ambitious in addition to being crazy capable and smart and everything like that. Uh, the other thing I did mention is she did meet while she was in Rome with uh, the famous orator and statesman Cicero, who reportedly was not particularly impressed with her, not from like a capability standpoint, but just he thought she was kind of arrogant and unsufferable. Like he was just like... <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, so... I, and again, I don't know enough about Cicero to know, well, hey, maybe that's because was she stepping on, was she bold enough to, you know, consider herself equal to men? And so he found that arrogant. I mean, I don't know how that all plays out. Or but- conversely, 
is it like the reason that she's oh you know she's like super interesting and like witty and smart is because like Mark Antony and Julius Caesar like simping over her super hard and Cicero's <laughs> like I don't know what your guys' problem is she's not that cool <laughs> uh, yeah fair fair oh and uh, so Octavian Caesar Augustus is the it says that Julius Caesar is his maternal great uncle so I think that means yeah that his grandmother is julius caesar's sister yeah okay okay so but it also said that he that caesar basically adopted him as his consi- son adopts him as a son yeah right right which is why he was there so yeah, yeah rome worth mentioning too for romans it was equal so, so someone being genetically your son mm-hmm. versus adopted your your adoptive son they didn't really consider no that there was a distinction yeah yeah right. so it was yeah, so Octavian became his son by virtue of adoption, but right, it, it had a, it had more even more impact for Romans than. And again, obviously, if someone adopts someone today in the United States, we consider that to be their actual son. But I'm saying that adoption could occur when they're like 25. And right, yeah, 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 because this wasn't like a oh he adopted him and like raised him from a little kid. Like he was already an adult when he did that, right? Or at least a teenager. Yeah, or just it, it, these, yeah, these kind of token adoptions made someone your full son and heir, even if it was, yeah, not actually about raising them up, right? So the Antony and Octavian thing, again, is super complicated, and a lot of it falls outside of Cleopatra's story. They, what I kind of wrote down is they were basically frenemies for a long time with Antony kind of controlling the eastern half of the Roman Republic and Octavian in charge of the western half of the Roman Republic with on paper them being equal, but Octavian has the advantage of Rome being in the western half. And so he's able to, in effect, control the messaging and how Rome views Antony. So... Mm while they're kind of just frenemies for a while and much to the chagrin of Cleopatra because they had already started their romantic relationship and already had kids together when Octavian insists that Antony marry his sister, Octavia. Right. And so Cleopatra is kind of grumbly about that and they're maybe on the outs for a little bit before he kind of comes back to Cleopatra. And again, years pass. Anthony is just doing his administration thing and he's, you know, putting out fires in that half of the Republic and Octavian is just kind of doing his thing and Cleopatra's expanding Egyptian territory. And I mentioned all the kind of chaos and crime earlier. Egypt kind of thrives under Cleopatra's rule here now. But as things kind of disintegrate with Antony and Octavian, with Octavian kind of wanting more power, he's kind of always looking for ways to needle or undermine Antony's stature within Rome. And he's able to use Cleopatra as this wedge. And it kind of all comes to a head where they actually kind of full on start fighting each other. It's going to be basically the straw that breaks the camel's back is Octavian exposes Antony's will to the Roman public, which is technically illegal but once he's done it he's done it like obviously you're not supposed to let someone's will be known while they're still alive and basically it's a huge breach of protocol and probably even illegal but it's basically exactly what octavian needs to turn antony into the villain in the eyes of the roman people because it says that one cesarean is the true heir of julius caesar (laughs) 
And right, and it says that which obviously <laughs> Octavian, aka Caesar Augustus, would have issue with. And of course, he wasn't Augustus yet, but yeah, right, right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. But you know, soon, soon to be Caesar yeah, Augustus would yeah. have issue with, yeah. And it also says that I, Antony, want to be buried in Egypt next to Cleopatra. <laughs> And obviously acknowledging our... Oh, and that probably pissed Octavian off because it's like, bro, you're supposed to be, like, married to my sister right now. Yeah. <laughs> so so that basically turns it into a full-on civil war because there's kind of... That's a tough one for Anthony Anthony to try to explain his way out of. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you can't roll that back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, full-on full, full, on, full on conflict at this point. And, again, all these things take years when we finally get to the Battle of Actium, the decisive battle in the whole conflict, that is in that's September 2nd of 31 BCE. So again, 13 years after the assassination of Caesar before you finally get to the ultimate conflict between Antony and Octavius, Octavian, however you, again, both are acceptable. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what, so the yeah, Battle of Actium, this is uh, in the Ionian Sea, just off the west coast of Greece. Actium is just kind of the name of the little fort town that is kind of just, again, geographies. The more you zoom into a map, the more contours and little things there are. So <laughs> Actium is just kind of on this one little, uh, you know, peninsula promontory kind of thing. And there's a little fort there. So it's not super significant, but it was the nearby thing. So it's the Battle of Actium. Right. Different from the Battle of Antietam. <laughs> which I think which I, is, yeah, I, I slipped right. up last time when we were talking about this. <laughs> I was going from memory. I was going from memory. <laughs> it was the A word that came to mind. Yeah. So basically, you have kind of Octo- uh, Octavian's forces. And again, this, this doesn't mean a sea battle for the, for the soul of Rome, so to speak, here. So Octavian's ships kind of have Antony's and Cleopatra's ships kind of pinned in to well, that's not exactly a gulf but just kind of this this inlet there they're kind of trapped and so it forces a battle on the sea because Antony's other option would have been basically okay let's get out of the boats and we'll march across Greece and we'll get new boats and we'll sell but basically that would be the other way out but he, right. they, they, he chooses to fight his way out instead Octavian does have more ships but it's still pretty evenly matched this details or this battle is pretty well documented, so you can get really into the nuts and bolts how this battle breaks down with all mm-hmm. the different groups of boats and all that kind of stuff. But simple version is it's kind of mostly stalemated for a while, and the, the, the ships are just kind of you know going back and forth. And what what kind of uh, w- without getting I guess too deep into the specifics of the battle, what what kind of uh, combat are we talking about here? Is it, are, are they this is obviously before the days of like cannons and stuff, but how are they? Are they just like shooting arrows at each other from the boats, or are they like? boarding each other's boats or how are they how are they even fighting um, like how do you even fight a battle on the water in uh the year zero or i i, I right I, i'm definitely yeah or the year uh yeah 30 bce so right 30 bc i i'm definitely not an expert on this but my understanding <laughs> well one from movies but also from just kind of what little i have have gleaned i i would i would didn't even research this specifically but i would say oh, it's okay. co- combination of yes you're going to be launching arrows possibly with fire but you're also going to then kind of get ship to ship and then fight you know with the other ship but then gotcha. that's happening in multiple places so yeah there's a little bit right. of there's fire back and forth and then you pull up alongside you're trying to ram each other you're fighting another oh, okay. ship you're maybe you're trying to scuttle their ships like there's definitely ways to fight but yeah it's uh cool. you're right it is definitely pre pre-canon so 
Cleopatra's been hanging mostly back, stalemate in the middle, and her ships kind of come through and punch right through Octavian's center in a way that should help Anthony's crew maybe even turn the tide. But she doesn't then use this advantage to, like, you know, flank Anthony's ships. She just punches through and Beats goes it. straight to open water. Yeah. Hell she just, yeah. Just leaves. They, <laughs> so they punch through, and she just nopes out of there, heading yeah. back toward, heading back to Egypt. <laughs> She's like, "Forget this mess." <laughs> right. And again, because you know, technically the battle's not. I mean, it's <laughs> anyway. But she is Anthony's ally, so seems kind of kind of a low blow here. But then, and again, this just seems like something straight out of a movie. Anthony sees Cleopatra's ships leaving, yeah. jumps to a faster boat, abandons the battle, and follows her. Oh my gosh! Like it's just crazy. I I, don't, I I can't even get my head around that. That he basically left. He just abandoned the battle. So then after that, basically his the rest of his troops are forced to either surrender or switch sides or you know whatever. Right, they're they're done for at that point. Right, yeah. right. Do, do? <laughs> Why even continue fighting? <laughs> right, and even then it takes it takes a while. It it takes almost a year for things to kind of sort themselves out before Antony and Cleopatra ultimately kill themselves, but that is kind of where this is leading. There are some more skirmishes. They try to maybe, you know, re- recoup and still kind of challenge o- Octavian, but after the Battle of Actium, it's nothing but downhill from there. There are parties trying to convince each of them to betray the other. Like, hey, Antony, you should just turn on Cleopatra and da-da-da, we can do this. Or, hey, Cleopatra, you should just hand over Antony and da-da-da. But those attempts fail. They actually stay loyal to each other to to the end. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, how romantic. I mean, after after a showing like the the Battle of Actium, though, I feel like you got to stay together after that. <laughs> no, right. You're yeah. You're pot committed at that point. And there was definitely reason for Cleopatra during these final years to have seen Antony as more of a liability than an asset. But again, I think there does seem to be a sincere connection and relationship uh, between these two. And again, you kind of think, yeah, dating back to you know Anthony talking about the love of first sight, and there's there's a reason this is kind of this famed romance because you know to what extent did they both give each other or give everything up for each other kind of thing, which again may be overblown because obviously Anthony was still doing political things in his interest and in growing his empire. They were, they were trying to do it together. It wasn't even so much of giving up Rome. He he wanted it all. I think they both just wanted it all. They wanted everything they had politically, but they also wanted to have each other during the time. And again, why not, right? So I'm a little confused by this part here, too. So it does sound like when Antony ultimately commits suicide, it's because Cleopatra had just sent word that she had killed herself. Like, basically, go tell him I killed myself. And then he kills himself, like something right out of Romeo and Juliet. And then when she hears that uh, Antony has killed himself, and it's even possible that she even, like, was able to meet up with him again before he died. And... We get what well, I mentioning earlier, Octavian obviously wants her taken alive and is like adamant that like we have to take her alive. Like as his right. troops are closing in on Alexandria, take her alive. And some people consider this to be uh, roughly an exact quote from Cleopatra. Obviously, she wouldn't have said it in English, but <laughs> uh, the line, I will not be led in a triumph. So what I was talking right. about before with her sister, you know, several years before that she didn't kill herself so much because Anthony was dead. She killed herself because she wasn't going to be made a spectacle of. She was too proud for that. So it is pretty well documented then that she did commit suicide. I mean, I know like the whole asp thing is maybe apocryphal, more myth or legend or something. Or but it, it, it I mean, 
her and Mark Antony did both actually kill themselves. Like that much is at least known. Yeah, yeah. There, there. I don't. I don't think there's any reason to think otherwise. Um, okay. You, you could argue with Antony that the Rome Romans would have considered that the honorable way out. So, do they want to paint him in the honorable way out? But no, I, I think that with Cleopatra, though, it's like it's not what Octavian wanted. Like, or the idea that a soldier would have killed her or anything like that. Like, no, there's there's just no evidence to it. It's it's okay. very well documented that uh, documented that she did uh, poison herself. Now, the snake thing is apocryphal. But it does kind of, you can see why people might have thought that or thought that was a more interesting story. Because the poison she used was probably either like scratched or punctured into her skin. So oh, okay. So it might have looked like a bite mark from a snake. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. Right, right. And so that becomes a more fun story. But yeah, so she probably scratched her skin or punctured her skin and poisoned herself that way. So she wouldn't, couldn't be taken alive by the Romans is basically what it boiled down to. Now... What her hope was, she had Caesarian by Julius Caesar at this point, and she had three kids with Mark Antony at this point, which I think the movie Cleopatra with uh, Elizabeth Taylor doesn't mention those kids at all. Okay. So her hope was, she was trying to set things up. Remember, again, she was a proud Egyptian who had done actually a really good job ruling Egypt for 20 years when she was actually given a chance. Right. So her hope was that, okay, Caesarian would now be Ptolemy the 15th and rule after her and she actually probably named him cool ruler near the end of her life there okay uh and that her kids with antony would be well set up and so she maybe naively just kind of hoped that egypt would continue on as it was and she was just her chapter was done but her son would continue on after her well octavian was like yeah not so much (laughs) (laughs) and cesarean is killed less uh, the same month that cleopatra dies of course. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, her kids with uh, Antony, it was, uh, she actually had, they had twins at first, a, a, a daughter and, and a son, and then later another son. And they were, well, there's no record of them being killed at the time. <laughs> I guess I'll say it that way. So it's possible those, it's possible they were allowed to live, but the sons disappear from the historical record. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so. We don't have record of them being killed, and there's actually not even speculation in, like, you look at the Wikipedia stuff, you look at, there's not even speculation that they were killed. I'm adding the speculation because, yeah, because they're not mentioned again in the historical record. So it's like, well, then they were probably killed, right? (laughs) Yeah, so it's it's not even like like a princess in the tower type thing where it's like, well, they were like, like, there's technically there's no record of them being killed or who killed them but like they definitely were killed right it's more of a mystery even than that yeah so that's the comparison i'm gonna make but i couldn't find anybody else making a similar comparison which i thought was really weird it's like okay so you're telling me they sister from the historical record but lived Yeah, Uh, i don't know about that (laughs) i'm a little skeptical it's possible but the daughter was actually married off by octavian to a north african king in another client state and her son, so Antony and Cleopatra's grandson through the daughter, uh, was actually a king in this North Africa area. Huh. But then the records get less good, so it's possible right. their line continued through their daughter. Right. But we just kind of lose track of her yeah. heirs and if the line died out or not. Gotcha. So that's the story of Cleopatra. So uh, she's been featured in, you know, at least... 25 movies that were listed on the wikipedia page not to mention books and plays and operas and just countless works of art over the centuries she's this figure that has just been hugely oh inspirational is not the right word but influential and just significant and interesting which is the whole point of this tournament for the last 2000 years 
the one again the youtube video i watched this morning i thought summed it up really well just kind of saying that she's very arguably the most powerful woman in the history of the planet and was probably this i thought was interesting possibly the smartest most capable ruler on earth at the time she was alive which we didn't really get into a lot here but again that's kind of the boring part if you're talking about how she ruled egypt for 10 years well, there's not really much for us to talk about here about that, other than to say right. she did a really good job because she was yeah. super competent. And the only reason history marginalizes her is because she was a woman and had these relationships with these powerful men. Right. But she was their peer. And for sure. Yeah. And anyway, so uh, that might have been a little longer than we intended. Uh, Dude, I, I just had one more question, I guess. Is it known, like, where she's buried? Like, do they. Do they know where her final resting place is? Uh, So what's interesting is, uh, so the video I just watched this morning talked about some archaeologists who think they might have found it and just need to dig to it. And that video was from a couple years ago. So I was doing a little more research just before we got on the call here to see if any progress has been made on that. And it sounds like, yeah, no, we don't really think we know where it is. And its location has just kind of been lost to history, unfortunately. Although there might be some people who are hoping... It'll still be discovered. It sounds like that's unlikely. But again, it's all that stuff is it's hidden until it's not. I mean, right. The reason that I'm asking is because the forensic science that we have today, you can even take like a skeleton that's that old and glean a lot of information from it. Like I was watching, I got a bunch of uh, recommendations um, from YouTube videos about the exhumation of Richard III. Oh, yes. It was like. Buried in a, under a parking lot or, or yeah. a car park, as they say in the UK. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, they they dug him up and they were able to get like a little bit of DNA from one of his teeth. And they knew that, there, you know, there's this guy that they knew was a descendant of his. And they so they were able to do DNA tests to prove that it was him. Uh, but they were also like, oh, you can see like this little cut here shows that he was like stabbed in the ribs. Or like this wound on his head was like from, you know, maybe like a, a halberd or something like there was so much information they were able to get because right. they exhumed his body. So I, I didn't know if, if Cleopatra was the same way where, you know, maybe her, her resting place is no, maybe they could, I, obviously if she died by poison, you're not gonna be able to tell that by looking at the skeleton, but you would be able to tell that she wasn't like oh, beheaded or something. Right. That's true. Right. That she wasn't, it wasn't a blunt force trauma to her skull or something that would have yeah. been unexpected. No. So no, we, we don't have her remains. Hmm. The other thing on the Richard the third one though, I think is interesting is that it also, that's also why we learned that his, uh, deformities that history talks about are were exaggerated that you can we have if you have a skeleton you can realize oh yeah yeah. oh he i mean his his scoliosis it's like you can minor looking at his spine oh it's it's pretty severe oh sorry he 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 would not have been like a hunchback whereas he was called like the hunchback king that's probably that's an exaggeration but he did definitely have like bad scoliosis right which which you can have and not people wouldn't even necessarily know you had it Yeah, yeah yeah right yeah but that was one of the other things that they were able to, when they first dug up his skeleton, they were like, oh, look at that spine. Like, that's probably Richard III, because it, it's like an S. Like, it's it's curved. Right, right. But, uh, but again, I think I remember I talked about in the episode on him, it, it would have manifested as like one shoulder higher than the other, not something for that you sure. could visit. Not, yeah, not, not a hunchback. Yeah. So, hey, the whole point of this episode is to choose... Who advances to the round of eight? And we have to have that conversation now or do our little vote thing now. And I honestly, I do. I love the Truong Sisters story, but I think Cleopatra could win this whole tournament. And I got to vote for, for Cleopatra. Sure. I, I'm the same way. Um, I'm also going to vote for Cleopatra. But 
but I also I will think, make the Truong Sisters movie if I have to. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I think that the Truong Sisters, there's just, there's not enough record about them in the same way that there is about Cleopatra. Like, they could have maybe done a bunch of other interesting stuff that we just don't know about because well, it wasn't written too. about. Right. Or, you know, also so much of their story is kind of intermingled with legend and myth, and it's not really, it's not really certain how much of it is um, actually 100% historical fact whereas with cleopatra we just we just know a lot more and there's a lot more detail and it's it's also kind of a a one hat thing but yeah cleopatra's just she's so interesting like she's 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 a heavy hitter in this bracket right right and again i i haven't honestly i haven't worked it out i haven't ranked like the remaining people to figure out how i'm gonna vote i I don't know she may get eliminated next round she may win the whole thing i haven't decided yet and you know obviously we'll get joe's input on some of this stuff going forward too so what we are going to do, just so you can, everyone listening kind of knows our plan for the tournament. So the way we did our bracket, so she will not actually face the winner of the Ashok of the Great and Ramses of the Great matchup. Once we get down to the Elite Eight, we're going to kind of reseed. And so we're going to match up people against uh, people from different time periods. So the top remaining seed in each region will get matched up against the lower of the two seeds remaining from another region. So. Cleopatra, she is the highest seed left in the Ancient Ones. So she will get matched up against the lowest seed from modern times uh, that makes right. it through when we get to the Elite Eight. So we'll kind of get a little different approach to our matchups here in, in the next round. Yeah, so good talk on those two. And next time we will get to another matchup between crazy, interesting, important women when we get Empress Matilda and Isabel of France uh, matching up next time. So listen to that next time. (laughs) 